Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, a little hoarse today, but we have a very special show today. We'll be spending the hour with Laura Carlson, digging deep into some key developments south of the border from Chile to Brazil, Mexico, Argentina, and more, a wide ranging conversation. So thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. And Laura Carlson is the director of the Americas program and works with Just Associates. She is a regular on our weekly roundtable. So we are very much looking forward to our in-depth conversation with Laura Carlson. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. President Joe Biden says a tentative deal has been reached between railway workers and the industry, averting a Friday strike that could have been devastating to the economy just ahead of the midterm elections. Under the deal, workers will receive 24% raises over five years and $5,000 in bonuses. But the sticking issue was no paid sick leave. Railroads have agreed to one paid sick day and easing strict attendance policies. Ron Kamenkow with the Rail Road Workers United Union calls the provisions an insult. He spoke to Democracy Now! this morning. A bit of an insult, one would think. Uh, most workers have 10 to 15 sick days. Under the agreement, railroad workers will be able to take unpaid days off for doctor's appointments without being penalized. That was another sticking point. Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders railed against penalizing workers for taking time off to see a doctor on the Senate floor yesterday. What that means is that if you as a worker get sick, if your child gets sick, if your spouse gets sick, and you need to take time off of work, not only will you not get paid, you actually could get fired. And that is precisely what is happening today in the rail industry. How crazy is that the tentative agreement goes to union members for a vote Russian forces blew up a dam in Ukraine, causing flooding and evacuations in Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky's hometown southwest of Dnipro. Zelensky calls it an attempt to flood the city. Eight cruise missiles hit a water pumping station there. In a video address, he called it a vile Russian act. The strike on a dam comes after Ukrainian soldiers recaptured nearly all of the Kharkiv region. Now stories are surfacing of tortures and imprisonment of residents during Russia's occupation. Zelensky also met with European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen today, where she pledged reconstruction funding. Meanwhile, Russia's President Vladimir Putin is meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping today and leaders from India and Central Asian nations at Uzbekistan for a summit on a security group seen by Beijing and Moscow as a counterweight to U.S. influence. A Russian official said Putin and Xi were due to hold one-on-one meetings and discuss Ukraine at the meeting of the eight-nation Shanghai Cooperation Organization. 
Rare good news from the World Health Organization on the COVID-19 pandemic. The head of the WHO says the number of COVID-19 deaths last week was the lowest reported number in the pandemic, marking what could be a turning point in the year's long global outbreak. We have never been in a better position to end the pandemic. We're not there yet, but the end is in sight. Amidst a wave of union activity, employers continue to erect major barriers to workers who try to organize a union. A Starbucks barista testified to a House committee about her experience Wednesday. Pamela Estrada has more. Earlier this week, Starbucks announced new financial savings and student loan repayment tools, but only for U.S. workers who haven't unionized. Michelle Eisen, a barista at the first Starbucks to unionize the coffee shop in Buffalo, New York, she told the House committee that since the union vote last December, Starbucks has engaged in a series of anti-union actions. Starbucks has no regard for our legal rights and they will never stop on their own. In the last year, the union has filed over 350 unfair labor practice charges against Starbucks with the NLRB. The NLRB has so far issued administrative complaints against Starbucks in almost 100 ULPs alleging over 600 legal violations. Some of these alleged violations affected every Starbucks worker in the country. And Starbucks workers are not alone in this struggle. Workers involved in other large organizing efforts at places such as Amazon, Chipotle, Trader Joe's, and Apple have faced very similar union busting from their companies. Since last December, more than 200 Starbucks stores have voted to unionize. According to the latest information available, none has yet achieved a contract. Union organizers say Starbucks is dragging its heels. Workers trying to organize at Chipotle and Apple have also faced similar anti-union tactics. Meanwhile, a recent Gallup poll said 71% of Americans approve of labor unions, the highest approval rating since 1965. I'm Pamela Estrada for KPFA. A House Oversight Subcommittee heard testimony about the fossil fuel industry's attempt to suppress protests by backing anti-protest laws and pursuing legal intimidation known as slap lawsuits yesterday. The strategic lawsuits against public participation have been filed against activists and nonprofits claiming defamation, trespass, and even racketeering to silence them and stop their opposition to fossil fuel pipelines and other projects that contribute to climate change. The hearing comes as a new report from Earth Rights International charges the fossil fuel industry with targeting 152 climate justice activists with slap lawsuits in an effort to stop them from organizing against oil, gas, and coal extraction. I'm Christina Onestead, reporting for Pacifica Radio. Those were our news headlines, and I'd like to welcome our guest that will be spending the hour with us. She's well known to those of you who follow Sojourner Truth regularly, as she is regularly on our weekly roundtable. Laura Carlson is the director of the Americas Program and works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization. She's based in Mexico City, where she's a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy in Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. She's also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, gender issues for various international news outlets. And Laura, welcome. Thank you very much, Margaret. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's nice to have this time to really focus on my part of the world here in Latin America, where a lot of really interesting things are happening. 
Yeah, I am really thrilled and delighted because I know on our, our weekly roundtable, you know, we touch on it and I really want to be doing more in-depth coverage on what's going on south of the border. You know, so many of us who live in the United States, we tend to focus on the United States. We know on Sojourner Truth, most of our audience, of course, is in the U.S., but we also know that we have an international audience and we do like to bring international and global issues. And we also know that there is an interrelationship, Laura, with the you know, U.S. economic and political social policies with what happens south of the U.S. border. So, Laura, let's start with this. I mean, there are a number of countries. There's so much we can cover, but let's start with Chile because a historic vote took place September 4th, 2022, where Chileans rejected by a vote of 62 to 38, a progressive proposed new constitution. And of course, this was a blow to Chile's young progressive president, Gabriel Boric, who came to power, many say, as a result of the movement on the ground, the progressive movement on the ground, in particular, the uprising that happened in 2019 in Chile. But let's go a little further back than that, Laura. September 11th was an important anniversary in Chile and indeed in the whole geopolitical world. Uh, tell us what happened on September 11th in Chile because it helped helps to set the stage for the rest of what we'll be discussing in relation to Chile, Laura. It is really important to go back that far to the 70s and to the coup that took place against the elected president, Salvador Allende, who promised a real change in Chile that would move it away from a capitalist system toward a socialist system that would create more equality already in those days, and it's only intensified since. You know, there was a high level of inequality, high levels of poverty, high levels of looting by transnational corporations of resources within the country, and the president was much beloved by the people until there was a violent military coup and it's been firmly established and documented. There's really no question historically about that at this date that the United States was behind that coup. Henry Kissinger was one of the authors of it and it was at the kind of the dawn of the neoliberal era, the latest form of capitalism that goes global. The free trade agreements came shortly after and it became clear that in order to impose this new economic model, it would have to be done through bloodshed. And this was the most tragic example that we have here in Latin America about how that was done. Although the military dictatorships that followed in Brazil, in Argentina are also extremely bloody. There were thousands and thousands of people assassinated and disappeared. There are still mothers, organizations of mothers who are searching for the disappeared during that time and for children born of left-wing parents who were in prison, mothers who were in prison. You know, it's still a huge part of the political heritage and the political memory in these countries. Now, in Chile, this initiated an era of the military dictatorship run by Augusto Pinochet infamous for that tracking down of leftists and the murdering and forced exile and disappearance of leftists in his attempt to maintain control. He then built a constitution 
that was rammed through. You know, there was really no, there was no democracy because this was literally a military dictatorship. There was no consultation or anything. A constitution that enshrined the neoliberal economic model and basically denied a large number of rights that we consider basic to any democracy in this day and age. Then it wasn't until the early 90s that they organized a vote to get rid of the military dictatorship. And it was a huge campaign that was based on no, no more military dictatorship and finally won. And then Chile began an era of democratic elections again. The suffering could never be erased. And what also couldn't be erased was the fact that this old time neoliberal dictatorship constitution was still in place and is still in place today. I think it's important to underscore the role that the United States historically has played. And, and I put south of the border uh, in quotes because the uh, uh, saying is, you know, the there's a lot of controversy over the U.S. border uh, historically, particularly the U.S.-Mexico border, you know, the southern border. But you know, going back to the whole Monroe Doctrine era, et cetera, I mean, the United States, it seems anytime there is a possibility of a government that's trying to find its own way, whether it was Allende in Chile or what happened in Guatemala, certainly what happened more recently we see in, in Venezuela, in Haiti, in Honduras, the hand of the United States is there. And I remember hearing the story of that there was a threat to actually bomb the presidential palace. Is, is that true with Allende during that horrific time? So it's, it's good to underscore this because that's U.S. taxpayer dollars that go into this kind of destabilization and overthrowing of governments, etc. Laura Carlson. Yeah, absolutely, Margaret. And so they're, they're, they enter into negotiations with this part of the military that is eager to take power and to overthrow the Allende administration. And the history that you mentioned is very relevant here. So you have the Monroe Doctrine in 1872, and it basically states that all of Latin America is the realm of U.S. hegemony. And that <laughs> has been asserted in many forms. What they were trying to do at that time was make sure that they completely got rid of the political and economic power of the former colonizers, which are mostly the European nations, and basically assured this area, which came to be known, you know, as the U.S. backyard or <laughs> patio, and so they ensure it for U.S. hegemony. The reasons for that were clearly economic in order to impose that capitalist model on the region, to have sources of natural resources, to have uh, markets, although the markets were still, you know, very, very small at that time, and to have uh, economic hegemony, but then also to have political hegemony in defining U.S. power, especially vis-a-vis -vis Europe at that time. As this evolved over the years, we saw that it became, with globalization and that phase of capitalism, it became very important to have access to those natural resources still, also in an age of scarcity, increasing scarcity, and to also have access to those markets. So we begin to see it develop through that neoliberal model and then through the free trade agreements in the later phase. The involvement with the coup was direct. There was constant communication. Nat National Archives is one of the sources 
that has brought out many of these documents that were gradually over the years declassified, showing the communications between them. And it went far beyond the moment in which they were actually able to cause the death of Salvador Allende and to take over. And it went to Operation Condor, for example. You know, where we have, where it was this major kind of bounty hunter operation that went after people who were in the resistance, not only to the dictatorship in Chile, but to dictatorships in Argentina and in Brazil as well. And it just went after them one by one in order to pick them off. And we also know exactly what happened to Orlando Lequelia, the representative of the Chilean government, of the Allende government, who was actually murdered under that in Washington, D.C. So it was a huge effort to control all sorts of resistances to the imposition of the capitalist model and all sorts of democracy movements in Latin America that had a huge impact on decades to come. Yeah. And, uh, you know, with, within all of that, Laura, and also those kinds of activities, sending a message not only to other parts of Central and Latin America and the Caribbean region, but, to, you know, the continent of Africa, anywhere around the world where people want to take the initiative to forge their own interpretation of, of democracy, establish, you know, some kind of independence there. We see, you know, the United States and its allies, um, their hands right really on the necks of people. Laura, the other thing I I wanted to bring out here is that when it comes to indigenous peoples south of the border, I mean, we know a lot of people, you know, at least recognize in places like Guatemala, in Mexico, Bolivia, where there's a strong indigenous presence. And of course, in Latin America itself, in the Amazon region of Brazil, a lot of people don't think of Chile in terms of indigenous people. And indigenous struggles, but that is not the case, is it? The Machupe in uh, Chile have, uh, you know, a historic presence there and have been playing a role throughout all of this, including in the recent uprisings. Tell us a bit about that, because the, the rights of the indigenous, when we get to talk about the constitution and what was actually in this new constitution that got voted down, the rights of indigenous people were very high a very high priority or emphasized in this wording of the new constitution. So tell us about indigenous and the Machupe and and, uh, how all of that happened, because clearly the presence in, in the constitution of those rights meant that there was a tremendous movement in Chile that made that happen, forced that to happen. Laura Carlson. Yes, that's exactly right. And the Mapuche people in, in southern Chile, especially, uh, have been keeping up resistances for many decades, basically since the conquest. And it's become a more acute phase with the land grabs that are taking place. In the recent, in the recent stage of capitalism, which is really based, is especially in Latin America, on extractive industries. That means the extraction of raw materials, not unlike, you know, the economic model under colonialism, of raw materials that in their case include fresh water and minerals, uh, mining operations, as well as hydroelectric plants and other types of industries that really destroy the land and take over land that is supposed to be in indigenous hands still with some of the even very weak laws that they have. 
So there's a pa- approximately 2 million Mapuche people in Chile, the largest by far of indigenous organizations. The first president of the Constitutional Assembly, in fact, was a Mapuche woman, a linguist, um, and they were involved in the drafting of this. But there seems to be, and when we talk more about the about the Constitution, which is a fascinating process, you know, how it developed, what it turned out to be, and then how it went down in flames, basically. We can talk more about this as well. There have been somewhat of a gap in the drafting of the Constitution and the discussions among the base in the Mapuche people, but also in general within Chile. Proposed some of the most advanced rights for indigenous people in terms of their autonomy. It, it put forward a Chile as a plurinational country, which means that they really did have autonomy over major decisions having to do with land use and self-government within their defined territories. And it's supposed, we have to say too, that actually that was one of the most strongest points of reaction to the constitution. There was a blatantly racist response to indigenous rights in the constitution that became a major part of this very powerful right-wing campaign against it that was carried out in the in the media, essentially saying, um, oh no, now indigenous people will have more rights than we do as the white elite within the country. And then also there was a lot of misinformation put out about what that exactly stood for. But they are and will continue to be in resistance, especially in terms of defense of their land and territory. And it remains to be seen how much can be redeemed from the rights that were included in the constitution that was voted down in what everyone expects will be a new, different process, not quite so left-wing, not quite so progressive, but that hopefully will be able to recuperate some of the major advances. Yeah. And, you know, on that, I, you know, I agree with you. I mean, it, the racism was really quite, quite something here. And I was reading an article, actually an opinion piece that came out in the Wall Street Journal on September 11th, right? The anniversary of the coup there, really trashing um, the new constitution and even the process of it. And one of the things that they said that the constitution aimed to expand the power of the state enshrine new privileges for special interests and divide the country into multiple nations. This gets back to that autonomy and and land use uh, thing you were talking about. And when people go there, Laura, they, they neglect to mention that if you look at Australia, where you have Aboriginal people very much still under you know, suffering racism, economic oppression, etc. But there are parts like in the Northern uh, Territory sections where there is at least a level of autonomy. I know when I was, I needed a passport to get into some parts of the Northern Territory under control of Aboriginal people. And I'm not saying it's true control, but you know, it is a recognition of some form of autonomy, but they act as though the sky is falling. This is something that will never happen and you're talking about dividing uh, Chile into several nations. Laura, Jessup, some final thoughts on this indigenous piece, then we're going to take a short station break, and then we're going to uh, get into more into the, the Constitution itself and some other areas in the Constitution. But Laura Carlson. Yeah, I think the national elite that is the direct heir of the colonial elite and closely allied now with international capital 
is wedded to this nation of the nation state. And of course, very important to them is to have control of all territory and resources because that's how they've made their living. That's how they have become so obscenely wealthy in the face of so much poverty. That's how they have been able to use governments in order to continue those privileges. And so they see any kind of a threat to that, and particularly when it involves indigenous territories as something extremely, that they respond extremely violently to. The fact of the matter too, is that indigenous territories are now where much of the fresh water, much of the resources that the world needs are still held because they have been able to protect it against the overexploitation that has happened in other areas where they've been more accessible to, to the, the greed and the destruction of capitalism. And now that they're the last bastion left of some of those resources, we're seeing that capitalism and major billionaires are coming in and buying up land because they think the planet's going to go under and it's going to be the only livable place left. We're seeing these bizarre you know, scenarios uh, that all add up to an, a more extreme offensive against those lands and against the people who have been managing those lands for millennium. Yeah, I'm so glad you raised the managing of the lands because we also see throughout the region a kind of a tension happening also with indigenous people who have been uh, protecting the land and the environment. And even some of the progressive left governments, um, you know, on the areas of, of development of, of mining, you know, extractive industries, uh, oil, etc. And we see some, some clashes there and some contradictions there. But Laura, we're going to just pause very briefly for a station break and when we return we'll continue our in-depth conversation with Laura Carlson as we dig deep into some of the breaking fascinating struggles and, and movements south of the border stay with us we'll be right back por mi piel morena borraron mi identidad me sentí pisoteado por toda la sociedad me tuve que hacer fuerte por necesidad fui el hombre de la casa muy temprano Y la necesidad, mi corazón descalzo se perdió en la ciudad. De mis suelas gastadas, de tanto caminar, aprendí de la vida, la calle y su soledad. Y es que todo lo que tengo, tengo, tengo es mi verdad. Y que solo me acompaña, paña, paña a mí. Verdad, verdad, mi verdad. No quiero tu autoridad, solo quiero caminar. Con dignidad y conquistar mi libertad. Mi gente de pie se queda y tempestad. Los ojos de mi barrio se llueven en humedad. Contra viento y marea creamos humanidad. En contra del silencio rompiendo la frialdad. Y es que todo lo que tengo, tengo, tengo es mi verdad Y que solo me acompaña, paña, paña a mí Verdad, verdad, mi verdad No quiero tu autoridad Solo quiero caminar con dignidad
nosotros vemos verdad Ustedes crean rabia en nombre de la autoridad Ustedes son los pobres, carecen de dignidad Sepan ustedes, no queremos caridad No tenemos sus casas, tenemos la vecindad No tenemos sus guardias, tenemos comunidad Necesitan nuestra música para ver la realidad Pero jamás conocerás la solidaridad Desde que nací conocí la necesidad Aprendí de la vida, la calle y su soledad Mi verdad Hi, this is Gloria Steinem This is Joni Mitchell This is Brother Cornell West And you are listening to Sojourner Truth With host, my dear sister, Margaret Prescott Okay, welcome back to Sojourner Truth. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. We also want to welcome our Sojourner Truth listeners on all of the Pacifica affiliate stations as well as other flagship stations across the country. If you are a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Our shows are archived there. Also, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We're also heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners, any of our SoundCloud listeners that are south of the border. We started with the international first today and in the United States, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the state of Tennessee, the state of Tennessee. Our guest is Laura Carlson. She is a writer, a journalist, a campaigner. She's based in Mexico City, regular contributor to a number of major news outlets and also several Spanish language publications. She's a television host, commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, gender issues for various international news outlets. And we're really pleased that Laura, and with her busy schedule also is able to join us on our weekly roundtable here on Sojourner Truth. But today we're taking the opportunity to have the time to, to talk more in depth with Laura about some of these south of the border issues. And Laura, just continuing with, with Chile a bit, because that was such a, a big moment with the possibility, first of all, the election of this young president, Gabriel Boric, 36 years old. And there was a movement that happened in, in 2019. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about that movement and his rise. And then this whole process of drafting a new constitution. And then we can talk a bit, a bit more depth about some of the other areas. Earlier, we talked about indigenous rights, but I was so moved when I read the, the bits in the Constitution having to do with women and having to do with care work. Um, but there's a lot there's a lot of good stuff in there. So, uh, Laura, tell us about this young president and this movement that he came out of. Well, particularly in 2019, although there had been many predecessor mobilizations, you could say, uh, there was mass mobilization calling on the government to, it began with students, it began with high school students actually, calling on the government to provide uh, public education to their, the, we're talking remember about this neoliberal constitution and neoliberal governments for the most part that had continued with privatizations of almost all social services, 
within the government. They were working on this model of what they called the subsidiary state, which was the most reduced part, you know, version of the state you could think of and left everything else to the supposedly called free market. But that was really, you know, this system that was rigged for the concentration of wealth and for the wealthier to get more while people uh, no longer received even basic needs and basic services. So they began this, these uprisings that were absolutely emblematic for Latin America and for the world really because there were millions of millions of people. They were able to work across sectors. They were able to come together on demands. Um, students were a big part of it, but there were many other, there were workers and indigenous people and others involved in it as well. And this was after Chile had been for many years, certainly since the 73 coup, you know, kind of the poster child for neoliberalism. They were saying, look how well this economy is doing. Uh, and the cracks were hidden until finally these mobilizations made it clear that despite growth rates, the extreme degrees of inequality were leaving many people without the basic things that they needed to to survive and live a decent life. And this was thanks mostly, as I say, to the students' voices. They paid a high price. There was extreme repression under the previous government. It became, it became famous worldwide that the police were aiming to shoot out, particularly the left eye in the symbolism of the left, yeah, a form of deterrence for the strikes. And so there are, there are many young people in Chile now who only have one eye because of the repression oh. during those movements. So that led into the realization that, you know, they could not gain what they needed to gain in terms of some of the major changes, structural changes to the economy and to the politics. If they didn't have a change in the constitution, which is always, you know, the, the, the framework of, of law within a country, and the movements agreed to go into this process of selecting representatives for a constitutional assembly and redrafting a constitutional uh, constitution. And there's, there's obviously precedents for this in Bolivia and Ecuador under progressive governments. Uh, so they began to the election process. There was a lot of social mobilization to figure out the delegates, and they ended up with a very left-leaning constitutional assembly. Most of the delegates were independents, so it was not um, controlled by the political parties at that point. There were 17 of the 155 delegates, indigenous people, and they had a firm commitment to gender parity with over half of the delegates women. So you could already see a major change in the system just by this process alone. Then they went into the hard work. They had to extend the deadline several times of drafting this new constitution, which came out in July. And they had only two months to do the, the campaigns to convince people to vote for it. 80% of the, almost 80% of the public voted to have a new constitution. And then there were the campaigns. There was a lot of misinformation. There was a lot of, even though it was published, it was very extensive. There was a, a lack of information on, in some ways. And in the end, as you, as you mentioned at the beginning, it was voted down by 62% of the population to 38% that voted to approve it. We've been having some discussions, you know, with the Chilean counterpart on why this happened. And there seemed to be a number of different reasons. They felt like they, the Constitution itself 
lacked a center, clear message to people. And, and so for many, it was, it was kind of a laundry list with a number of really, really great measures in it, but that they couldn't quite forge a message that was convincing enough. And then the right decided to just a long time ago, apparently to some, according to the analysts we've spoken with, decided to kind of abandon the drafting of the constitution and fighting for this article or that article and go straight into a, a campaign to reject it. And so they were very mobilized. They were very, they had a very clear message in terms of three or four things that supposedly were gonna cause instability and, and they were, were obviously not afraid to um, lean heavily on racist sentiment in the, within the country, on sexist sentiment within the country, because there are very clear advances in terms of rights within the Constitution on those issues. Now the president has says there will be a new, a new constitutional assembly or some type. It may not be the same form of organization. It's probably going to involve the, more the uh, political parties and Congress, unfortunately, I would say. Um, but there will be a new, a new process. Uh, and they, they do have this, this document you know, to, to work from, but they also have to figure out what happened in a more, you know, in a more detailed way to be able to assure that there's support for it when the next one comes out. Yeah, and 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 Laura, thank you for that. A good roundup there about about the the whole process. You know, I was quite struck. You you talked about uh, gender uh, parity. I was quite struck. Um, a number of things. I mean, two things that jumped out. Clearly, the indigenous uh, section of it, but in relation to. Uh, women and uh, care work in particular, this is so far ahead of where the movement is in the United States, um, even within movements like the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, um, the movement for guaranteed income or a basic income. And just to quote the constitution in Chile, and I wanna thank Nina Lopez from the Global Women's Strike who actually pulled these pieces out and sent to me. It says the state recognizes that domestic and care work is socially necessary and essential work for the sustainability of life and the development of society. They constitute an economic activity that contributes to national accounts and must be considered in the formulation and execution of public policies. And, you know, they, and then they go on to say that, you know, those who perform this work, you know, should, should benefit and should have some resources. And, and Laura, I was really so thrilled seeing this because it goes back to a, a resolution that myself and several people uh, in, in our women's network worked on during the UN Decade for Women on this issue of, of caregiving. And it's been a real uphill struggle because the, and including in left circles who still see work as at the point of production and not the caring of people or even the caring of the environment. So women must have had a, a, a big role um, in ensuring that this kind of thing got into the constitution in Chile. I, I know we have to move on, but I, I just really wanted your thoughts and comments on this, Laura Carlson. It's really important. And they did. They were The feminists were probably the most unified sector within the constitutional assembly, many of them in what's called the March 8th coordination. 
uh, and they they were able to to make their arguments to get them into the constitution, and they're very very advanced. I think the reason in the fact that they had just lived through 2020 and part of 2020 and 2021 pandemic years had really heightened the awareness and the analysis of the role of care work. And it, it was also part of the factor that uh, contributed to moving from the streets, you know, into this effort concentrated on the Constitutional Assembly. And they not only got these very important measures, including coverage by the state, including equal pay for equal work, including remuneration for people who do care work, but they also got included um, major advances because Chile was quite backwards in this sense in sexual and reproductive rights and the right to abortion. So again, you know, that if these things can be salvaged in the next, in the next round will be very important. And it's something that the rest of the world is watching. The analysts say that this constitution contained more rights than any other document in the world. Yeah, in terms of human rights, very, very advanced. And the care work was, was one critical aspect of that. Right. And as you say, work is going on right now on the next draft. I mean, this this particular one was I understood was like 388 pages. I don't know that we'll see something um, that length. Some people were talking about having a draft ready um, by September 18th, which is Independence Day uh, for Chile. I don't know how realistic uh, that is. since that is just a few days away. But we'll, we'll keep our eye on this, Laura. And we will depend on you to be bringing us our regular updates on this really uh, vital uh, process in relation to Chile. Um, I'm afraid we, we now likely will have to shift then another hot spot that's happening, Brazil. There's an election coming up. Bolsonaro, who is like, some people say he's to the right of Trump, if that's even possible. <laughs> Anyway, um, and you have Lula da Silva um, attempting to make a, a comeback. Tell us where things are now um, in Brazil with that election. The polls are a little bit all over the place. It's a little worrying to see that the polls seem to be narrowing between uh, Lula and uh, Bolsonaro. Laura Carlson. Yeah, that's that's right. And this is uh, with Mexico, you know, the largest economy in Latin America. It contains um, the biggest part of the Amazon forest. Uh, so it's 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 hugely important in terms of the balance of powers and the geopolitics of the region. And it's had a fascinating and very difficult past. I think we have to mention that really quickly. People will remember that Lula was president of Brazil from 2003 to 2010, and then his successor from the same party to continue, continuing many of his redistribution measures was ousted through by corruption uh, accusations in what many call a technological coup or a technical coup, you know, um, and uh, the that came through the courts in large part. And then Lula was just recently absolved because so much of this was a frame, a frame up uh, so that he could take part in the next election. And he's held a commanding lead, which is, it's, it's hard to understand Brazilian politics in some ways, how you could have the pendulum swim, swing so far from going from that to electing this right wing 
political figure, Bolsonaro, who's who is no makes no bones about being racist, about wanting to just basically destroy nature if you can make a buck out of it, you know, the classic almost caricature version of a right wing leader. And going back to, you know, going back to Lula, but it's 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 really restating something we've seen a lot, which is people are rejecting the center because they feel so dissatisfied. They're looking for not I mean, you know, for relative, you know, for major changes. And they're capable of swinging back and forth as long as they see a real change coming because they're so insecure about the about the way things are in the present. He still has a fairly commanding lead. And um, although we have seen that that worrisome narrowing of the gap, there's still a fairly commanding lead and there's still some time left, you know, for 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 the for things to go on. And it's likely that. Um, Bolsonaro will actually is more likely to embarrass him himself during that time than than Lula is. So uh, there's still the, all the prognosis here in in uh, in Latin America is that he still will be able to win, and then they're just looking at um, at whether we'll we'll be seeing a first round win or not. So the uh, this would be a major a major event in terms of geopolitics, as I mentioned, because that means that here in Latin America, there's let's say I haven't done the actual count. There's this very very large block of um, of progressive or left wing, and the terminology is problematic, you know. But governments in in Latin America that have in one way or another declared themselves against the economic model. I mean, you have many of them, like Petro when he, in Colombia, when he came to power in a major election that we've talked about too, um, just recently said clearly, we're not, we're gonna improve capitalism rather than get rid of it. Um, and you have others that have said, we're gonna end neoliberalism like Lopez Obrador in Mexico and yet you haven't seen major change, structural changes in the economy. And then you have Venezuela and Cuba that are working with the socialist model and, and Bolivia as well. So you've got, a, you've got a widespread there. But one thing that they have in common goes back to what we talked to at the beginning is a commitment to self-determination in their nations. And that means a commitment to kind of uh, to block U.S. hegemony in the region. They're no longer governments, which has been typical in these countries, that will automatically say yes to the U.S. economic and political agenda. And that makes for a lot of new and very interesting possibilities. I think it's important, even though it's a small country, to mention Xiomara Castro in, in Honduras, too, because they suffered 12 years of a coup again, supported by the United States government and then post-coup regimes and were able to change to uh, left-wing government in their recent elections as well. Right, and, and Laura, a point well taken. And, you know, I'm looking at a, a troubling headline from The Guardian uh, newspaper of the UK in relation to uh, Brazil that says, never mind the voters, Bolsonaro plans to win. Now, in the United States, given everything that's happening, you know, all the January 6 investigations uh, that are going on, all of the, uh, the, the top secret documents um, that apparently uh, Trump 
considered his personal property and 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 took to his club Mar-a-Lago in 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 Florida and we know that Bolsonaro is a great admirer of of Trump and and then there was some violence too I mean some of uh, uh at, I heard at least one I'm not quite sure of the Lula um uh, supporters, a, a, a local official for Lula's party was killed by a backer of, of Bolsonaro. And they're saying that the number of weapons, the number of guns in private hands has just about doubled uh, in the past months. Um, your thoughts uh, uh, about this particular concern? It's a very, very dangerous situation because he has said that and there was a point where he said i will accept the results of the elections and then he adds this caveat unless there's some evidence of fraud so he could easily mm. you know invent the same kind of thing you know invent a fraud and say he's not accepting it and mobilize his followers again people who are not um reluctant to use violent means and who don't have a commitment to democracy uh, and in that case, it's going to be, again, it's going to be really important, the role of the international community. If this happens either in a first round, if Lula wins, or in an expected, the first round is, is very soon, it's October 2nd, or in an expected second round, in a runoff election, it could throw the country into, uh, into violence, into a violent conflict. And it would be extremely important for the international community to isolate that kind of an uprising against Democrat, democratic rule of law immediately, or it could really, it could really spread. And it ends up, as is always the case, affecting in the worst ways the most vulnerable parts of the population, the people who have the least, the people who are uh, in areas that are coveted by lawless forces, you know? And so, so yeah, we've got to keep a close eye on Brazil, both in the first, uh, first round on October 2nd, and then if there is a runoff, and particularly on, on what Bolsonaro is capable of doing, because his statements indicate that if he feels he has enough support to get away with it, he's capable of making a complete rupture with democracy. Yeah, and so much at stake there means so much of the Amazon there, a lung, important part of the lungs of the world, indigenous people, um, so much under threat um, and under attack uh, under uh, Bolsonaro and uh, showing great disdain um, for environmental uh, protections and just the, you know, rise of just kind of racist uh, violence. We know that there are a lot of people of African descent in, in Brazil, in fact. Uh, so many of those enslaved um, were um, went to Brazil. A lot of people don't know a lot about what's happening um, with black communities there, but just a, a lot of racist violence as well. So we'll see how all of this goes. Uh, Laura, we'll be keeping a, a, an eye on that. But I, I'm afraid we, we do have to, would like to spend some time then on uh, Mexico, um, because one of the things I know that you mentioned in the 
one of our roundtable was the, the murdered students uh, that happened there, those 43 students in the state of Guerrero in uh, 2014 and government complicity. I wonder if you would like to tell us a bit, uh, you know, just fill us in on that. But also there's been a tremendous movement I know that you have been following and in some ways part of of um, mothers, especially women, uh, seeking their loved ones who have disappeared. Laura Carlson. Well, first of all, on the disappeared students, which became an internationally well-known case, uh, the new report that came out from the Mexican Government Commission has determined that the armed forces, the army that was in the area at the time, had a role in it, that they were aware of what was going on at all times, that they did not intervene to save the students and that they in fact blocked investigations and efforts even at the time of the disappearance and the assassinations in September of 2014. So that report was very important. It's gonna be very important to follow up on it, but it leads to uh, what's going on now as well is that there were they issued 83 arrest orders for police and member, members of the military and not one of those has been executed. And right now there's a huge debate going on in Mexico about militarization because the president has announced that the National Guard will become part of the army, which it always was in, in fact, but it was supposed to be under civilian control, that it will now formally become part of the army and that the use of the armed forces in police activities will be extended to uh, 2029, from 2024 to 2029. So there's a lot of discussion about what does this militarization mean to democracy? Is this militarization? What are the risks to a very weak democratic transition that's been happening in, in Mexico? This is also linked to these experiences because this model of using the military in the war on drugs, in the war on organized crime has been precisely what led to now well over 100,000 disappearances in the country, as well as the skyrocketing homicide rate. So they're basically entrenching a model that they themselves, the government of Lopez Obrador has criticized. And um, it could be at tremendous cost from all we know from the experience uh, at tremendous cost to the families. The mothers of the disappeared have come out very strongly saying that the militarization is not the response that will reduce both uh, the disappearances in the future as well as lead to more justice and, and uh, finding the people who are missing in the present. And so they continue to be probably one of the strongest autonomous grassroots movements. And they're not just mothers, but they're led by mothers, you know, in Mexico for the construction of peace and to turn away from this militarized model that has cost them so much on a very personal and tragic level. Right, and we'll also want to be hearing more about that, Laura. We just have a couple of minutes left, and it's occurring to me we're going to need a part two with you where we could dig more because there's a lot on Mexico and the role, AMLO's role with establishing Mexico's roles, I suppose, in the 
geopolitical areas and, and just there was a high level economic dialogue that happened a couple of days ago between Mexico and, and the White House. There's the issue of the lithium supply chains as the U.S. is moving more towards, you know, EV to, uh, you know, uh, electric vehicles. And, you know, so there's there's quite a lot going on there. But Laura, we really have like just about a minute or so left. But I'm wondering if at some point very soon we could do a part two of this where we focus a bit more on issues you didn't get to today, more on Mexico. But also, there's a lot going on in Peru, Argentina, Venezuela, other you know other parts of Central America as well. So we hope, Laura Carlson, that we can have you back really soon. This has been just very informative and fascinating uh, discussion, and I'm sad to say that we're we're out of time. But if there's one thing that you could say quickly, Laura, yeah, thanks, and uh, yeah, of course we can have a part two. And I just want to go back and say, let's put on the table for that part two also this whole issue of progressive governments and not just relationship with indigenous peoples but also relationship with the environment in an era of new kinds of threats what we're seeing is a lot of the old frameworks of left and right and the old frameworks of progressive or reactionary are not right. working in the same way so that's that's going to be an important thing to talk about too and it really applies to us politics in a lot of ways absolutely well we are going to have to uh leave it there laura carlson we'll schedule that very very soon i'd like to thank you for taking the time with us today's show produced by me that's margaret prescott i'd like to thank alicia vargas our assistant producer and the board up for today we want to thank gary baca right who, who's our engineer if you'd like a copy of today's show please contact the pacifica radio archives at 1-800-735-0230 go on Line to Pacifica Radio Archives.org. Uh, stay tuned for Democracy Now! Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow for our weekly roundtable. Laura, I hope you'll be back uh, for, for that, our Friday weekly roundtable. Thank all of you for listening and you all stay well and safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Stay well and safe. Thank you for listening. 